0: Please, if you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty of extras. Just raise your hand; we'll be glad to give you one. So, how was your week? We get back together. You're like, don't ask. Some of you're like, it's pretty good. Think about the, the the kind of this ongoing synergy of Christians. We gather to worship, to grow, and then we scatter to serve and evangelize and. And try to live out the Christian life. And then we get back together as a body. And we, we worship the Lord. But we also we have a time of training. A time of encouragement. A time where we hear from the Lord. And so in essence, in a very sincere way, Christian gatherings are a holy huddle where we look at the word of God. And, and we say, Lord, show us how you want us to live. Show us where you want us to change. Show us how we can become more like Jesus and make a difference. And so this morning's passage is, is very, very practical. It it almost goes without much explanation because it's so direct and, and clear that God is very concerned about our relationships. And so this morning we're going to talk about three things. Our relationships with other Christians as we're connected, our relationships with difficult people, especially people who have hurt us or our enemies, and then our relationships to the government. But all that's under the umbrella of Romans 12 through 16, which is the application section. This is where God's saying, okay, I've done so much for you by my grace and mercy. We saw last week that the first thing he he wants us to do is to dedicate ourselves wholly to God. And even that, I need to be constantly challenged in because we live in a culture where just a little bit of Christianity is enough, whereas New Testament Christianity is radical. It's Every area of my life is affected by the gospel and learning how to live for Christ. We saw last week that the first thing God says is, I want you to surrender your body a living sacrifice, but then sustain that by renewing your mind. And so one of the things I want to just put a slide up here real quick, um, Pastor John has developed a program called Grace Growth, and it's available on our website, and it's a training and discipling resource that's available to the church family so that you can Continue to look for resources for renewal in the gospel, ministry training groups, videos that address specific basics of discipling. So when people ask you, hey, you know, I know I'm a Christian now, but I'm struggling in my marriage or I'm struggling to forgive or I'm, I'm struggling with a, a habit or I, I want to learn how to help someone else. Somebody asked me to disciple them. I don't know what that means. So remember, we're saying that Christianity is a corporate Activity, we're the body of Christ, and we come alongside one another, and we disciple one another, and so we constantly, Pastor Bob has helped us to cast our vision, which is to advance the gospel. And a joy. Almost every week, we're seeing people getting saved, but then we're not just getting a soul scalp. We're then making disciples. We're growing into the image of Christ and, and getting plugged in and then making disciples who make disciples. So this morning, we're going to start off with God speaking to us about our relationship to other Christians and the importance it is to be involved in a local church and serve one another so you're sort of like you're preaching to the choir pastor we're already here we go to church now what you're going to find is that's really sort of assumed going to church it's what do you what do you do during the week after going to church that's really significant so let's pray and then we'll look at this passage Lord I just pray that the Holy Spirit will stir our hearts Father It's easy in American Christianity to be comfortable, to be lethargic, to be lukewarm, to even fall in love with this world and to lose the importance of a passionate relationship with Christ. I'll be the first one to confess that ugliness that infests the church in America and pray that all of us will be open and honest to what the Holy Spirit has for us in this passage of scripture help us to change and grow to be inspired and convicted and to put these truths into action in our personal lives and our family and then to disciple others to do the same that we might be before you a church that's worthy of advancing the gospel and giving a testimony of the power of christ to change for it's in his name we pray amen so last week paul said once you give yourself to god discover your gift and start using it to serve others but beginning in verses 9 through 16, now he's going to talk about your relationship to church. Learning to love other Christians as we, as we do life together, as we live out our Christian faith. So let's start in verse 9. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, this is going to be a, a, a preeminent theme in the rest of the book: is learning how to love other Christians. Okay, what does it look like to love? Love is not a feeling solely. So when people say, I'm not in love anymore. That's nonsense. Love is a a commitment. When you get married, you say, I promise to love you. So there's no such thing as saying, I'm not in love. What you might say is, I'm struggling to show love. I'm struggling to practice love. And so we all struggle to show love. We struggle to practice love. and, And the New Testament is full of this gospel reminder that love comes from God. It's a fruit from the Holy Spirit. It's something that God produces within us. But we participate. So the first thing God is telling us is as I relate to other Christians, I have to learn how to love them sincerely without hypocrisy. Now, the original word for hypocrite was, was a word that was used in Greek drama. Because Greek do- drama, you've seen those little masks that they would have on a handle. And they would put a, put a mask up and they would portray a certain person in the play. And then they put a mask up. That was called a hypocrite. There was nothing moral about it. It was just you were changing a face, okay? But over time, that idea of hypocrisy, of two-facedness began to sort of permeate the meaning of that word. So that the idea here is if, if, if God's calling me to love someone, I can't treat them one way when they're present and then act and speak about them in a totally different way when they're absent. And this is something that sometimes we struggle with because we're like, well, what if I don't like someone? I'm not going to pretend I like them. That's hypocritical. But th- think about this. When you're learning to love, you're committing your will to do that. You're not saying, I'll start loving you when I feel like it. So when Dennis comes over, or when Mr. Wilson comes over to Dennis's house, remember Dennis the Menace? And Dennis's mom says, Mr. Wilson's here. Say hi to Dennis. Or say hi to Mr. Wilson. And Dennis goes, No. And then she's blushing and embarrassed. So after Mr. Wilson leaves, she says, Dennis, why didn't you say hello to Mr. Wilson? And he goes, because I don't like him. Well, that doesn't matter if you like him, Dennis. You need to be nice to him. You need to treat him nicely. No, that would be a hypocrite, because I don't like him. Now, would you, would you say, yeah, you got a good point, Dennis. I don't like him either, right? No, you would say, listen, you don't have to feel likey feelings for someone to commit yourself to showing love to them. And so we're, we're, we're in this process of each one of us has to say, hey, listen, am I committed to loving the other Christians in this church? Not everybody's going to like each other. You're my favorite friend. I want to hang out with you. We love without hypocrisy. And then Paul says, we abhor what's evil and cling to what's good. Now, this is related to love. True love is developed within the context of purity. Paul prayed in Philippians 1, he says, I pray that your love will abound in discernment so that you can approve the things that are excellent. And so, as Christians, we're going to love more when we learn to hate things that are evil. Think about how our culture glorifies and mocks evil. Proverbs says, fools make a mock of sin. So much of our television culture, sitcoms, or a lot of the humor is just built around sexual or innuendos things that are just wrong and yet we laugh at them that's funny so as christians we ask god lord give me an abhorrence help me not to you know sometimes people go the the problem with dirty jokes is they're so funny right or i shouldn't say this but did you hear the one listen god wants us to develop a hatred for evil evil is destructive evil drags souls down into hell Evil is something that's prevalent. We live in an evil age and we need to pray that God will give us a, a repulsion for it, not a lukewarmness or even a, a finding fun in it. Instead, we're to cling to and pursue and seek after good things. You know, when you have conversations with your family and friends and the things we read and the music, is this good, is it wholesome? Or is it filthy, is it, is it banal, is it foolish? Foolish. I need to be devoted to my brothers and sisters in brotherly love. Now, here's the thing. If you have no contact with with other Christians during the week, are you devoted to them? If I say to you, how often do you talk to your brother? Ah, you know, once a month. To be devoted to someone means that you're making an effort to develop relationships outside of Sunday morning, okay? Okay. So God's goal is not for you to just come and check your butt on a chair for an hour. This is just when we gather to, to worship and grow, and then we scatter and we engage with one another. This is why we're so constantly asking and, and pleading with you to get engaged in some sort of a small group, a growth group, whether it's a men's study, a women's study, a couple study, something where you're, you're saying, I'm going to get into a smaller environment with other Christians where I'm devoting myself to them. So if I commit myself to that, I don't go, oh, I'm too tired to come tonight. Or, you know what, there's a good ball game on tonight. Or, hey, we're going to have a romantic night tonight, so forget about my... F-. Listen, that, that's the point, is that relationships with other Christians is like banking. You don't just come along and make withdrawals. You devote yourself to depositing yourself in relationship with other people. And that causes... Growth to take place. But it also costs something. It's sacrificial. Now, I, I love this phrase, give preference to one another in honor, because it reminds me of Chip and Dale. Remember Chip and Dale, the two little chipmunks? They were so polite, you know, almost to a fault. No, 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 you have the last acorn. No, 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 you climb up the tree first. You're like, please, stop it. But, but there is a sense of which, as Christians, I, I am thinking about other people and, and wanting to honor them, wanting to engage them, wanting to know that they're valuable, and I care about them. And then Paul gives us some personal challenges as far as our, our spiritual zeal. We talk about being on fire for the Lord, and we talk about being lukewarm for the Lord. And basically, Jesus says, when you're lukewarm, you make me want to puke. And frankly, I think if, he, if, if we look at American Christianity, Jesus wants to puke. Because we are so shallow. Shallow. We spend so little time in prayer, so little time in sacrifice. There's so little holiness in the American churches that in many ways statistics say the, the, uh, the, the rate of sexual immorality, the rate of drug addiction, the rate of divorce, the rate of um, all the sins that characterize the world is pretty much the same in the church. So God's calling us to say, listen, being a Christian is not for slugs It's not something you do as a hobby. It's not something that you sort of dabble in. You throw yourself wholly into it. And there are times where God speaks to me. He says, Tom, you are lazy. And you need to stop it. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit serving the Lord. That word fervent means boiling. That's where we get the idea of of being on fire. of, Of having a passion for God. Now, we can't just work that up. We can't go, okay, come on, guys. Fire on three. One, two, three, fire. And we all just high-five and we run out. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. But God works through our repentance. God works through our surrender. God works through our prayers. And so God wants to work in us to will and work for his good pleasure. So when David sinned against God and he lost his way, when he repented, he said, oh, God, Psalm 51, 51. Sustain me with a willing spirit, and then I will teach transgressors thy ways. Some of you are saying, you know, I, I kind of have lost my edge. I, I don't really read the Bible very much. I, um, you know, I'm, 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 I, here and there, I, I'll have a devotion or something. What are you doing for Christ? Well, you know, I'm, I'm so busy right now. This isn't just, just one of those periods in my life where I don't have a whole lot of time for God. So, so, what are we going to do about it? A new Christian gets saved and they're on fire for God. And they're like, Maranatha, want to hear about somebody I witnessed to. Praise the Lord, look at this verse I found. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And we're like, you just found that? And then we kind of give them that cynical look. Like, just hang around us for a while. You'll, you'll cool off, right? As opposed to saying, that's normal Christianity. They're, they're, they're not overzealous. They're they're not the freak. We are when we become so casual and lukewarm. And so this is a call to say, hey, I got to do some serious self-evaluation. This stuff doesn't happen by accident. Don't say, oh, that's not my personality. Be like all into stuff. This is something that Christ works in us. This is what he wants from us. a, A surrendered body A group of people that are working together. Look at that phrase, serving the Lord. Is that even in your framework that the way we live our lives is supposed to be serving the Lord? Which means if you're changing diapers, moms, you can do that unto the Lord. Taking the trash out, I'm doing it for the Lord. But you know what? Getting involved in your local church is serving the Lord. And as I've observed, as I'm getting a little bit older, I look back on on saints from maybe the last couple generations, and some of you grew up like this. Every time the church was open, my parents dragged me to church, and they were always doing something. We were always serving the Lord, and frankly, I just got burnt out on that. And I get it. There was excess at times, but you know what? I think God would say, I like what they were doing better than what you're not doing. Because I think there's this other extreme. Well, it's all about me and my family and TV night and fun and and forgetting that God is calling us to engage in service to Christ. And service costs something. David said, I won't give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. So ask yourself, personally, what are you doing to serve the Lord? I'm not saying it has to be within these four walls. Maybe you volunteer at a soup kitchen. Maybe, Maybe you're helping at a pregnancy center. Maybe, maybe you're doing a prison ministry or, or going to a nursing home. Maybe you said, hey, I'll sign up and come set up chairs. But ask yourself, how much of my time and energy and effort is given to serving the Lord? You fathers, how much of your heart's direction is, is Joshua 24? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you including your kids and considering ministry things, and teaching them how to pray, and teaching them how to give, and teaching them how to do things for the Lord, rather than just indulging them. We don't want to have a youth group that says, come, and we'll pander all of our kids, and we'll give them food and pizza, and they'll make the biggest ice cream Sunday east of the Mississippi. We want, to, we want to train young people who want to serve the Lord. You're like, pastor, you're stepping on my toes. No, I'm, I'm stepping on all of our toes, because that's what God says, Right? Rejoicing in hope and persevering in tribulation. Now, here's the thing. When we get here to church, it's silly to think that we all had a good week. That's stupid, right? So I'm going to give you permission that when people say, how are you doing? You do not have to say, fine. Okay? In fact, if everybody's fine here, somebody's lying. Okay? Because many of you are struggling deeply with your marriage, with sin, with anxiety, With your finances, with depression, with your kids, with broken relationships? And what do we do when God puts trouble in our life and and the whole thing blows up? Well, well, the natural thing to do is to say, God, I'm going to give you two options. Either get this trouble away from me or get me away from this trouble. And God goes, how about door number three? I want you to learn to persevere in tribulation. So this morning we come in and we're all struggling. Everybody's got something that, that's hard, right? And, and we think, God, I need to press the easy button like staples, and then it goes away, and God's going, no, 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 no. The whole point of tribulation is that as you persevere, you're learning to depend on me. You're learning to become more like Jesus. You're learning that my grace is sufficient for you. You're learning that the, the trouble that you want the least in your life might be the thing you need the most. Because it's drawing you to focus on Christ. And so when we get together, it's okay to say, hey, how are you doing? I'm struggling, man. I'll see people at the door and they how are you doing? And their eyes are tearing up. That's Christianity. That's the hospital that we're in. And that's where we say, hey, can I, how can I pray for you, man? Instead of just coming in, hey, fine, fine, fine. Praise the Lord. How are you? Everybody's fine. That's ridiculous. But instead, we go, hey, pray for me, man, I'm, I'm struggling. But God will give you grace, and as you persevere in tri- tribulation, you will experience victory. You will experience peace. You will experience spiritual growth in your life, and what you will find is that God will begin to use you to help others in their tribulation. Because we can't do this alone. We need it. We need one another. And you say, well, you know what? Life stinks. Life stinks. And God says, yeah, I do understand that. And I want you to rejoice anyway. Rejoice in hope. Don't be a complaining, defeated person. You're not a hypocrite. If your heart's broken, you can still rejoice in the Lord. You don't go, yeah, everything's great. The Apostle Paul said, I'm sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Because you step back and you get a bigger perspective. And you go, whatever I'm going through right now, it's only temporary. And I have the Lord with me. He'll never leave me. And I have Jesus who promised that he'll never allow me to go through what I can't endure. And I have the promise that no matter what happens, even if I die, I'm going to be with Christ forever. And so I can rejoice in these firm promises of hope that that God is for me and he's not against me. That I'm forgiven. That he has a purpose for me in this life. And this is not optional Christianity. These are the cores of the Christian faith. The Bible says, this is the will of God that we pray without ceasing and everything give thanks and rejoice evermore. So through your tears, can you you look up to God and say, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but you've taught me to say it's well with my soul. I praise you, Jesus. You're here with me. But one of the reasons that we cave to tribulation is partly because we're not devoted to prayer. That word devoted to is a strong word. This is the most common word that the New Testament uses to urge us to make prayer a regular discipline priority in our life. This is perhaps one of the number one reasons why Christianity is so weak in American culture is because prayer is not important. Prayer is not emphasized. It's not vital. It's not a high priority. And so Yeah, you know, I I don't actually have a personal prayer time, Pastor. I I just pray without ceasing. How often does Jesus want you to pray? Well, how about this phrase? Give us this day our daily bread. Oh, so he wants me to have a prayer time every day? Yeah. And he says, and when you pray, get into your closet. So, So if you don't have a regular meeting with God in prayer... God's calling you. He's speaking to you. And you can have a million excuses, and they sound good. But they're not good sound excuses. If you're too busy to pray, then something's got to give. Repent and change your ways. Discipline yourself for the, Jesus' sake. Say, Lord, I don't even know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to get alone with you. And I'm going to spend some time reading the Bible, and I'm going to learn how to pray. Oh, I don't know how to pray, that's part of discipleship. There's plenty of people here. If you wanna learn how to pray, none of us are a graduate of the school of prayer, none of us have a PhD in prayer, but we can teach you how to pray. You say, I don't know how to pray. I go, yeah, you know how to talk, then you're a good candidate for prayer. We can recommend books. We can, we can give you samples and models and, and encourage me, but at the end of the day, you're like, well, how long do I have to pray? The Puritans used to say, pray until you pray. Satan doesn't want you to pray. You bow your head, you to your Lord, you try your little ESP prayer and you're laying in bed and the devil's going, you're getting sleepy. Or your stomach's going, I want a hamburger. Or the phone rings. Satan doesn't want Christians to pray. If you're married and you're not praying with your spouse and you're both Christians, beg God to change that and make every effort. If you're dating, make prayer a corporate priority. Man, take the leadership and say to your wife, Let, let's take a few moments to pray. And she says, yeah, well, maybe if you turn the third football game off, then turn it off. And say, let's pray together. What can I pray for you, honey? What's going on in your life? And then begin to think about other people. And when, when the church has a prayer meeting, pray. And when you're in your small group, and, I, and I'll often say this from the pulpit, please, don't have a, f- a two-hour Bible study and a two-minute prayer time. You small group leaders, make sure that you leave time. Carve out time for prayer. God does awesome things in his people, and he does it through prayer. So God's calling us as Christians to awaken to a vibrant prayer life. Some of you are doing that. And I'm not standing up here saying, oh, I don't struggle. You know, when I get done my third hour of prayer every morning, I read the book of Isaiah. But I'm telling you, I'm trying, and I want you to pray for me, to pray more deeply and biblically and sincerely and pray that we will be a church known for prayer. And then as Christians, God's calling us to share our lives with one another, contributing to the needs of the saints. Well, What does that look like? It means as Christians, we're called to give regularly and generously. When the plate comes around and you drop a couple tired dollar bills in there and George Washington is blinking because you're so cheap, he hasn't seen light. God's not, that's, you're missing the point God wants us to give generously and regularly. We know this from statistics that in Bible-preaching churches, 50% of the people give nothing. That's heartbreaking to me to think that half the people that come to this church, or even if it's close to that, give nothing. Now let me say this. If you're not a Christian, don't give. You're wasting your time. God doesn't need your money. God wants to give you the gift of eternal life. But if you're a Christian and you don't give, you're in trouble. You're in danger. You're missing the point. And if you think you can't afford to give, I'm going to tell you the Bible is very clear. You can't afford not to. And so it has to become a discipline. So if you don't give at all and you're a Christian, begin to develop the habit of saying, I want to start giving to the Lord. We're not trying to build some kingdom here and drive expensive cars and get Pastor Bob a jet. Although, you know, I mean, he, I could see it. Couldn't you see him in his jet? No, we're not doing that. We're not trying to get money here. We're trying to advance the gospel. So, so think about this. Are you giving regularly? Have you disciplined yourself? The Bible says, honor the Lord with your tithe, the first fruits of your increase. Give as the Lord may prosper you. When you get a paycheck, when you get income, Immediately, I would think to myself, this is God's money. This isn't my money. I don't pay everybody else first, indulge myself, and then say, oh, sorry, God, maybe you'll get some next week. You set aside some for God first because it's his. And maybe some of you, you say, oh, I can't afford to tithe. I've never met anyone who can't afford to tithe because I just never have. Everybody I know that tithes is is incredibly blessed. They don't go, I, I have. But if, if. Your faith isn't there yet. God doesn't command you to tithe. Give a percentage. Start with 2%. But, but discipline yourself and regularly start giving to the Lord. And then step out in faith and say, hey, maybe I can try 3%. Do it for Jesus. He said, Pastor, I only make 100 bucks a week. I'm a student. That's all right. Give, then just get in the habit of generously giving to God. It's so exciting because God blesses that. And God honors those who give. And, and He meets the needs of those who give. And, and through our giving, we're advancing the gospel and we're investing in things that matter. And some of you go, oh, well, you know, I, I want to challenge you. That giving is, is a barometer of your soul. Read the gospel of Luke. Over and over again, Jesus pokes us in our pocketbook. And he says, where your money is, that's where your heart is. And there's a lot of fools, Jesus says, who aren't rich toward God. So I want to encourage you to do this. Keep a record of what you give. And you're like why? So I can brag? No. So you can keep your heart. From deceiving itself. Because I can assure you. If you don't keep any record. I can almost guarantee you. You probably think you give more than you do. But if you start keeping a record. And, 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 and thinking to yourself. Lord this is another way. That, that out of your grace. It's exciting. To give to the Lord. And, 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 to, and to see how. He'll meet your needs. And you can advance the gospel. So. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you had Christians over your home? You're like, oh, that's not, that's not our nature. We're very private people. I don't think that's what this verse says. Practice. You might not be very good at it. Ladies, relax. You don't have to have China, Right? What, what's my line? Feed them ice cream out of what? The Cool Whip bowls. It's okay, right? Nobody's going to get upset and go, why did we eat out of Cool Whip bowls? But if you're not in one another's homes, right, then your Christianity is very stunted, right? And so this goes against our culture. We're private people. We, we do our garage door opener. and We don't know who our neighbors are, but Christians share life together. Now be careful, the Bible says in Proverbs, don't, don't have your foot too often on your neighbor's doorstep lest he hate you, right? <laughs> don't show up every day and say, hmm, dinner smells good. But <laughs> but are are you going over anybody's house? Are you are you saying to people, let's go out to lunch? Are you developing relationships? Let's keep reading. Like, Pastor, this is this is making me squirmy. Good. That's, that's, that's the Spirit working to train us in righteousness. Then Paul begins to introduce something he's going to come back to, and that is, it's going to be difficult people. He says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. He's going to come back to that. So we'll we'll suspend that. How do you treat evil people? But let's let's go to verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So when when we hear of Jeremy getting married, praise the Lord. You know, somebody having a baby. Oh, praise the Lord. Somebody getting a promotion. Just being involved. How can we even rejoice with those who rejoice if we don't do life together? Right, if we don't share. Hey, want to hear something neat that happened to us? But then he says, weep with those who weep. What is that going to look like? People, There are hurting people right here. And if you're one of them, how can we weep with you if you won't open your heart and let us know? And sometimes we feel inadequate. What are we going to say to the Abrams? We have to come up with some clever thing to say to them. No, we don't. You don't have to give everybody a clever verse when they're suffering. Sometimes, Christians, we say stupid things. You don't need to say stupid things. like You must be very special for God to let you go through all these special, terrible things. Just be there. The ministry of your presence to just show up and say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I wanted to drop you off a meal. Or I just, I want to send you a card. My heart goes out to you. I don't even know what to say. But just know that we're there. What a blessing it is to have a church like that. I'm so thankful. I thank God for this church that that I know there's people that are there for me. and, And I hope that if you feel like, well, I don't feel like there's anybody here for me then we'll split the blame with you. But part of it may be because you haven't taken the effort to put yourself out there and get connected. Be of the same mind to one another. Don't be haughty in mind. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. So, so we sort of have this mindset. Okay, God, we just had a, a challenging, convicting reminder that we need to, to really step out there and live our lives for you and for one another. Okay, so right there, that ought to sink in. You know, if you walk out of here and do nothing about it, and I'm going to tell you what James says. He goes, if you hear the word of God and you don't do what it says, you're deceiving yourself. Don't come and pump my hand and say, oh, pastor, that was so nice. Right? If you're not going to do anything about it, the Bible says, but those who hear the word of God and do it, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now, what's really cool is I think a lot of this is going on. It's not like this is a church full of haters, Right? A lot of this is going on, but I'm going to quote the Apostle Paul. He says, as to the love of the brethren, this is what he told the Thessalonian church. You don't need anybody to teach you because you're being taught by God to love one another. But then he said this, but I urge you to excel still more. So I think we're doing a decent job at some of these things, but let's pray that we'll do it more for the glory of God. Somebody say amen. I'm afraid if the rapture happened right now, you'd all go up first for the dead in Christ shall rise. Like, 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 is this engaging you or are you like, okay? Sorry for my frankness. Okay. Um, Now, what about difficult people? Okay. There's going to be haters out there no matter what. They're just difficult people. They drive difficult. They act difficult. They're just difficult, Right. But as Christians, we've got two levels. Because there are difficult people who just hate everybody. And then because we're Christians, there's going to be people that hate you for that. And that's unique to being a Christian. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And and let me just tell you this. Don't outsmart Jesus by saying, nobody hates me because I just witnessed by my life. Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that it's evil. The Bible says all who live godly in Christ will be persecuted. If nobody knows you're a Christian and nobody's feathers are ever ruffled because you're trying to live different or represent Christ or invite people to come to Christ, you're flying way under the radar. God's not expecting you to go out and beat people with your Bible, but be a Christian and testify of Christ and be a loving relational witness. But the reality is there's going to be some people who just because you're a Christian, they're going to hate on you. And people are going to do mean things to us. And sometimes it's because you're a Christian and sometimes it's just because they're hateful. Some as simple as this. When people cut you off and honk at you and give you that good luck sign. Like, ah, why I oughta. So Paul says, look, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And, 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 and I think what Paul means here is that Every culture recognizes that to be non-retaliating is good. You know, I don't think Gandhi was a Christian, and I don't agree with a lot of things that Martin Luther King Jr. had to, to, to say in his lifestyle, but I do believe that his, his pacifistic ways were, were Christ's ways to turn the other cheek. To leave things in the hands of God. To not strike back. And that's really hard. Let's keep reading. God says. We'll go to the next verse. If possible so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. Now look at verse 18. Some of you have such a people pleasing personality. That to think that someone's mad at you. It just eats at you. Some of you need to have a personality that cares what people think. You're you're brutal. You have no filter, right? And you need to learn to be more kind and more concerned about the feelings of others. But for those of you that are struggling, you know, I want my sister to be at peace with me, but she won't talk to me. My neighbor won't talk to me. Someone at church won't talk to me. At the end of the day, you and I are not responsible for how they act. It's how we react and what we do. So God says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, you do your part to be at peace with all men. So if you've made an effort to apologize, don't say, but if you didn't do that. Listen, some people are irreconcilable, okay? And we just have to to just live with that tension of saying, did I do what I could? You may have heard me tell this story Years ago, one of my neighbors, I was looking out the window. This was many years ago. Jordan was was about five years old, and this neighbor's yelling at him. I could see the guy yelling, and Jordan's sitting there on his little bike. He's like five years old, and I'm like, you know, the she-bear just, or the he-bear just kicks in, like, don't, you know, you, you're not yelling at my son. So I, I go out there, and I go, what's the problem out here? And he's like, your son threw grass on my son. I'm like, oh, well, did you see it happen? He goes, no, but why would my son lie? And and, and then Jordan says, Dad, he told me he would knock my head off. And of course, then my pinball machine went, tilt. I'm like, I said, you tell my boy he'll knock his head off? And he goes, you know when somebody's caught in a lie, like, like they can't even think of, of, you know, the cookies are hanging out of their mouth. So he goes, no. I go, well, you just asked me why would your boy lie? Why would my boy lie? And so, with many other words, I encouraged him, don't ever do that again, right? <laughs> And some of you are going, that's right, brother, just like Donald tells us. You hit me, I'll hit back harder. And I go, yeah, that's real biblical. You know what? I came away from that, and I was embarrassed. And I read that verse. And I thought to myself, this is my neighbor. I can't look that man in the eye and talk to him about Christ. Some of you are going, I love it, pastor. Did you sock him in the mouth? No, I didn't. In fact, I went to his house and I knocked on the door and I said, listen, I owe you an apology. I overreacted. Now you're like, no, pastor, don't apologize for protecting your kids. No, I'm not saying we're not to protect our kids. You can be right in what you say, totally wrong in how you say it. I just said, listen, man, I'm sorry. I overreacted. I was protecting my son. And he said, you know what? I'm sorry, too. He said, I I overreacted. (laughs) Oh, stop. Come on. We (laughs) hugged. And I know what you're thinking. Whenever Pastor Tom tells a story, then he went like this. Dear Jesus, come into my heart and be saved. <laughs> didn't happen, okay? He didn't get saved. He didn't go, please tell me how to be saved. But the thing is, this is what Christians are called to do. To, to turn the other cheek. To, to, to be able to have a testimony that people can't point a finger at us and say, he's a mean, angry, vengeful-spirited person. If somebody gave you the wrong change at, 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 at the cash register... Possibly it was by accident. They were trying to cheat you out of a couple nickels. And so we learned to leave it to God. In fact, when people mistreat us, he says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now, there's a lot of discussion. What does that mean? Some commentaries say, all the way back to Augustine, well, his shame, his face will be bright red from shame. Others have found extra biblical literature where God heaping coals on people's head was a, a, a form of judgment, but at the end of the day, it says, don't be overcome by evil. See, I live in an evil world. And when people do evil to me, hurt people's first response is to hurt people. If you do that, you've been overcome by evil. But by the power of Jesus living in us, we, we, we turn back in love and we overcome evil with good. And the only way we can do that is by the power of the Spirit through prayer. I was talking to some, a Pakistani friend of mine in you know, think about this. In Pakistan, they're 98% Muslim, 2% Christians. And so he said, now that we're in the States, he said, Pakistani Christians, we don't really witness to Pakistani Muslims, even here in the States. He says, because we, we, we've always been sort of afraid of them. And then I thought about it, and I thought, you know what? I wonder if that's the only reason. Have you ever kind of not really wanted someone to get saved like they hurt you so bad that you kind of you kind of wouldn't mind if they had a few hot coals on their head jonah went through that right he's like i knew this was going to happen god that's why i didn't want to go to nineveh i was afraid you were going to save those jerks and in the same way you might have people in your life you know i i hate that person i don't i don't want good things to happen to them if that's what's in your heart, I want to encourage you to repent. Fall on your knees and say, here's why God wants you to forgive them. Not because they deserve it, not because he may not judge them, but because Jesus hung on that cross for you. The Bible never says forgive people because they deserve it. It says forgive them because God forgave you. And so I look at Christ. I don't look at what that person did. And by grace, we pray that we'll be able to forgive each other, that we'll be able to To pray for someone. To bless them and to ask God to save them. Lest they endure the fullness of his wrath. But let's move on to our last section where God's going to talk to us about government. So we're going to look at chapter 13. Just just verses 1 through 7 real quick. And I want you to think about this. I often ask Christians this. What's the first example of human government in history? Which civilization came up with this brilliant idea of government. Was it the Assyrians, the Babylonians? Was it the Egyptians? Or was it the Greeks with their city-states? Actually, the idea of human beings governing over other human beings was not started by any civilization. It was God's idea. And it was very limited in its original purpose. You see, the Bible says that because of Adam's corruption that we've inherited... That left to themselves, people will kill each other. And so in Genesis chapter 6, it says the earth was filled with violence and the thoughts of men's hearts were evil continually. And the earth, people were just killing each other. And what were you going to do? Pick up your stone and dial chisel 911? There was no recourse for protection. And so the murder rate and the violence rate and people were just savagely destroying one another. So God wiped out the entire Human race, except for eight folks on the boat. And when they came off, he says to Noah, we're going to do it differently from now on. From now on, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God just said, we're now going to have government. I'm going to set apart a group of people whose job is to punish evil and to protect good people. And so Paul says in verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, a- a- as, we, as we look at history and we see how people have, have unfolded that, is it should we have dictatorship, should we have communistic government, should we have a democratic government. The point is, whatever government that exists, it's established by God. It doesn't say only the good ones. Well, why would God let there be a bad government? God uses everything for his glory, the Bible says, even even the wicked for his praise and glory. And so, as we anticipate this next election, we're like, whoever wins, I'm killing myself or I'm going to Ireland, right? How about this? Whoever wins, it's because God established them. You're like, no, he would not do that. It would not be his will if so-and-so won. Now, as a Christian, you and I should be praying and voting. But at the end of the day, government exists and it's established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed will receive condemnation on themselves. Rulers aren't a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good. Now, this is where I kind of laugh because the same thing is in 1 Peter. It says, you will have praise from the same. I haven't gotten a letter yet from the government, but I'm hoping like today when you're driving home, if you see red and yellow lights and and, and you hear, and, and, and you get pulled over, instead of your stomach getting all queasy, just think to yourself, this is probably what Pastor is talking about. He's probably pulling me over to say, that was a beautiful stop you made at that last stop sign. <laughs> I just want to praise you for being a good citizen. Don't hold your breath. But see, that's the purpose of government. Let's keep reading. Government's a minister of God to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid. For it doesn't bear the sword for nothing. It's a minister of God. An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it's necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath. But for conscience sake. So here's the deal. God doesn't want people to kill one another. So he says. Here's how we're going to prevent that. People who kill one another. Will be put to death by the government. You're like. Oh pastor. That's offensive. Jesus didn't believe in capital punishment. He canceled it out. No. No he canceled out the Mosaic ramifications of the Mosaic covenant. We don't, put murder, or we don't put adulterers to death. But Paul says government bears the sword, and folks, swords were not for spankings. And you might say, well, I thought God loves people. He does. He loves them so much because they're made in his image that for someone to take the life of another, then their life needs to be taken. Why would he do that? He's not doing that because he's vindictive. In fact, the purpose of it is preventative. Think. In cultures where you know if I kill someone, I'm going to be killed. How odd that their murder rate's so low. What a coincidence. In cultures where you can murder someone and get out in a few years, the murder rate just keeps growing. Why? Because there's no consequences. So I'm not advocating, let's get electric bleachers and you'll turn this country around. But before you go, ooh, capital punishment, that, that's not biblical. A sword and a government is from God. And even, you might have, even the way you view police, you know, oh, they're all a bunch of jerks, they're all a bunch of crooked cops who are eating donuts. Stop that. Thank God that when you're, when, when you're in danger and in trouble, you can pick up the phone and there's somebody that you can call to protect you. And now it's going to get very challenging because Paul says, now God's calling you and me to support our government. So we'll finish with these next couple of verses. Look at this. This is very challenging. Because of this, you also pay taxes. Now, that's actually a commandment. Pay taxes. Now, unfortunately, I don't know whether I'll say that to you. I'll say it this way. If you're not paying your taxes, you're sinning. It's not a gray area. You're sinning if you are deliberately lying and deceiving and not paying taxes. And we come up with all these excuses. Well, I only give to a government. I'm not giving them tax money. They, they have abortion. Listen, the Roman government was wicked. Nero was wicked. But God says Christians are to give to Caesar what is due to him. Rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them. Tax, to whom taxes due. If you're lying and you're not paying taxes, and and somehow you've rationalized in your mind that you're different and you're an exception. And if you say to yourself, I can't afford to pay taxes. You can always afford to do what's right. But ultimately, at the end, it's not just that, that we pay our taxes but that we give honor to those in authority over us. I used to mock the presidents, make jokes about them, talk about them all the time, and then somebody challenged me, they said, what about all these verses that say, honor those in authority, pray for those in authority? And I realized, you know what? You're right, I need to stop that. And so I wanna encourage you, do you pray for President Obama? Do you pray for America? Instead of complaining and saying, they're all a bunch of crooks and I hate, listen, Honor and respect is not something that's earned. It's something that's appointed by God. God doesn't say, wives, respect your husband if he earns it. The same passage says, husbands, love your wives. Would you be okay with saying, if she earns it? So we don't respect our governing authorities because they deserve it, because they earned it. We respect them because that's what God tells Christians to do. And so I really want to encourage you to pray for our country. We're at such a critical place in our country. But God says in 1 Timothy 2, pray for all those who are in authority. And pray for the church that we may lead godly and tranquil life. So we're going to close in prayer. And I want you to pray for two things for this country. Number one, that Christians will be free from the wrath of the government. We are in a place right now where it's very, very precarious. Persecution may come to America. There's nothing wrong with praying that that won't happen. Paul said, pray that Christians can live a peaceable life in godliness and dignity. So pray that we'll be free from the wrath of the government and God will put a good person in office. But secondly, pray that we'll be free from the wrath of God. The Bible says, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a disgrace to any nation. Somebody said it this way, if God doesn't do something to America soon, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's pray for our country. And pray for the church in America that it will be revived. And at least, we can't do anything about the big church. We can do something about our church, amen? And our families, we can pray and try to live the way God wants. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in your word. And I pray that we will experience your blessing. Thank you so much for your mercy. This is a great passage reminding us to love. It's not an easy passage reminding us to forgive our enemies, And reminding us to be good, productive citizens. So we pray for President Obama. We pray for the upcoming election. That you will put the best person in office that will lead this country back to the Lord. We pray, Father, that you will not judge us. And that Christianity will not be persecuted. And that we will live revived and godly lives that make a difference. Lord, every one of us this week can make an impact as we serve you together. So use your word to inspire this church, till we're fervent and passionate, reaching out with the gospel, giving and serving and loving and being a testimony. We pray you will continue to bless us as we work together with you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.